Today uh, concludes the series on the Holy Spirit. I, this, is, this is the 17th sermon on the Holy Spirit. You know it's Holy Spirit inspired because I don't know that much about the Holy Spirit. I'm reading today from, from Galatians chapter 2 verses 19 and 20. For, though the, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. John Killinger has a friend named Dennis Covington, who, who was a teacher at Texas Tech University. And Dennis tells in his book, Salvation on Sand Mountain, about his experiences with snake-handling Pentecostals of northern Alabama. He first encountered them when the New York Times commissioned him to cover a trial in which a minister was accused of endangering his wife's life by forcing her to put her hand in a cage of rattlesnakes, ostensibly to test her faith. But he was there, as he was there, he was fascinated, and he began to like these folks. And then one night as Dennis stood in the back of the church and listened to the music and the tambourines and the shouts, he felt overwhelmed by something. And before he realized what he was doing, he was walking straight up to the front of the church, straight toward the snake boxes. And with a strange feeling of strength, he reached into a box and withdrew an enormous rattlesnake, waving it over his head. Then he returned it to the box and went to the back of the church clapping until the church was over. After that, he went out to his car and shook for 30 minutes before he could calm himself enough to drive back to Birmingham. He couldn't believe what he had done. It scared the liver out of him. Sometime later, he was unable to comprehend what had happened to him, so he returned back to church. And again, he sat in the back, this time kind of scared. The music rose, the people danced and swayed, and once more Dennis was overpowered by the spirit, and he went down to the snake cages and lifted out a big poisonous serpent again. And again he couldn't believe what happened. He swore he would never go back to Sand Mountain. He could not risk doing that again. He thought, sooner or later, my luck's going to run out. But Dennis says his life isn't the same anymore. Not since he was there on Sand Mountain. Something happened to him when the Spirit of God came over him. Something his mind and his body can't forget. Something that still makes him sweat and tremble when he thinks about it. A power exists there that Dennis didn't understand. But Dennis no longer doubted exists and that it somehow is connected to the kingdom of God. He attended a good Baptist church and they had lively services. But he said nothing in his Baptist church ever compared with what he found on Sand Mountain among people who would have trouble reading the hymn books from his city church. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. He's been preaching on the sermon and building up to something. Please, God, don't let this be it. <laughs> well, I, I'm telling you, release the serpents. No, it's a, we're not going to do that ever. <laughs> I'm trying to be funny. You have a look of sheer terror on your faces out there. Oh, my God. 
Now, one reason we'll never do that is because the scripture that makes snake handling, uh, that talks about snake handling, was not in scripture found in the earliest manuscripts. In Mark, in Mark 16 through 19, where it says you'll pick up snakes with your hands and you'll drink deadly poison and it will not harm you, that is not in the oldest manuscripts and not in most Bibles these days. Somebody thinks there are two places in Scripture where some scribe about 1800 or 1,900 years ago added some things trying to help out Scripture. Another reason uh, we will never handle snakes, just to assure you, is because it's hard enough to recruit deacons as it is. <laughs> no deacon wants to hear, it's your turn to get the poisonous, poisonous serpents ready for church. church. strategy. There's a reason you never hear of a snake-handling megachurch. God is merciful. Even to the people who sincerely believe and regularly risk their lives for what they think is the word of God. If he weren't merciful, the movement would have died out after a couple of worship services, quite literally. So why this illustration? What's the point? The point is that Dennis Covington was going to write a piece for the New York Times about a bunch of hicks handling snakes in northern Alabama. And instead, to his utter shock, he ran into the living God in the most surprising place and in the most surprising way. He, despite being a Christian, ran into a power he had never known before. A power that was unpredictable and uncontainable. A power that shook him to his core, and he has never been the same since. A power that did not fit nicely into his theology or his liturgy or his church experience. I am here to tell you today, brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit is real. And he can and does show up in all kinds of places, in all kinds of ways. Just ask Moses at the burning bush. Or ask people in Jerusalem with tongues of fire over their head one Pentecostal feast. Or ask the lone exile on the Isle of Patmos who was in the Lord's spirit on the Lord's day who saw a vision, a vision now we call the book of Revelation. None of these people expected what was coming. No one but the Spirit himself was in control of these events. Ann Dillard, who was a Pulitzer Prize winning author and a Christian, writes this about the Holy Spirit. Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke on Sunday morning? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are like children playing on the floor with dynamite, enough to blow up a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. We all should be lashed to our pews. That is what Dennis Covington discovered one night on Sand Mountain. When the Spirit comes in power, we must be open to His agenda, not just our planning. When the Spirit comes in power, we are not in control of our lives or our churches anymore. And that is precisely what scares us. Jesus wants to live supernatural lives through us in the Spirit. Lives that can't be explained any other way except that Jesus is alive and the Spirit is moving. Christ means, as Paul wrote, to live His life through us, nothing less. 
That is why he said, it is no longer I, but Christ who lives through me. But we must let him be in control for that to happen. We must be surrendered to the Spirit's agenda. We must be crucified with Christ. Because you see, there is a direct correlation between crucifixion and spirit power. Often the people most resistant to the spirit moving, I find, are Bible-believing Christians. Millions of Christians say, I believe in Jesus. I have faith in him as my Savior. I believe he died for my sins. I believe he'll get me to heaven. And I want to be a good person and go to church and be moral. But the thought of God actually showing up and starting to lead you, tell you what to do, guide you, fill you, the fact that you might get a little bit out of control sometimes, it scares us to death. Someone bigger and smarter than us running our lives is frightening. Let's be honest. In this nation, we worship control. It's the ultimate addiction of our culture. I see it all the time on car commercials, you know, buy a Lexus, be in control of your destiny. <laughs> Ultimately, if we let God be real and run the show, don't we get very, very nervous? Why, we might not look dignified a time or two. We might be like people on the day of Pentecost. Who say, oh, what, what's with those guys? They look drunk. But if you want to see the power of God, we must be surrendered to his will. We must give ultimate control to him. We must be crucified. You know, Chuck Swindoll talked about that if you want to be spirit-filled, that's the condition. Swindoll wrote that, for, wrote that for a number of years after he became a Christian. He said, I just messed around with spiritual things. Just messed around. He said, oh, I did all the right things. I ran around with church folk. I learned the God talk. You know the God talk. I sang the hymns. I even memorized verses. I prayed pretty good prayers. And I carried my Bible to church Sunday after Sunday. I sang in the choir. And I added to my schedule a Bible class or two every now and then. He said, but here's the problem. My life was my life and not his he said, I didn't let that religious stuff interfere with things like my career, my home, my strong will, my pursuit of things, my determination to go my way, my own personal plans. God, I'll go do this religious stuff, but don't you touch the real stuff. He said, I wasn't a wife beater or a criminal or an alcoholic or some awful notorious sinner. He said, no, I was just a self-centered man. I knew how to get what I wanted, and nothing was going to stand in my way. Stubborn and opinionated, I rolled up my sleeves and was ready to slug it out with whoever stood in my way, including God. Is, anybody, is this resonating with anybody? You ever been there? Are you there? Swindoll was a Christian, but he was not a surrendered Christian. He was not crucified Swindoll's confession shed some light on true surrender, by the way. He clearly stated at that time in his life he had no known major sins to repent of. Surrender, though, means more than repenting of sin. It certainly includes repenting of sin, but it means more than that. It means that we give everything to God, including things that are not sinful, including things we dearly love, 
that aren't readily identified as being in conflict with God's will. Things like career or possessions or money or personal plans. You see, surrender is not just an issue of right or wrong, but of high and low priorities in living. Surrender is not just getting rid of sin, although although God is certainly going to work on that. It's giving God what He wants. And I've got news for you this morning. He wants everything, good or bad, material or immaterial. He wants the things we dearly love as well as the things we hate. Oswald Chamber wrote, Total surrender is when you give up your right to yourself. That is the crucified life. As you think through the major issues you have recently, uh, decisions you made recently in the last six months, ask yourself, was God in this? Have I pleased the Lord or have have I fed my ego? Are your personal plans and desires before the Lord for his final approval? Here is how you know you're surrendered. Does Jesus get the final word on everything? Everything. Not just the religious stuff. That is what the Spirit is after. You. All of you. You know the Uncle Sam, I want you? That's Jesus. He said it before they did. And he didn't wear that goofy hat. He wants nothing less than all of you. Surrender means I am available 24-7. I am open to Him, to His thoughts, to His word, to His nudges, to His leading all the time. Because those nudges can come at any time and at any place. At, At night in bed or at the job, at the desk, in a conversation, in silence. Jesus made it clear to his first disciples, that their main task was not doing ministry for him. It was making themselves available to him. Like Samuel, remember the night God spoke to him? Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. That's our attitude. The second aspect of surrender is a willingness to do what the Spirit tells you to do. Why should God give us leading and guidance and power if we're going to do nothing with it, the spirit can be be quenched. If you want spiritual power, then you must be willing to do what the spirit wants. Isn't that simple? That means surrender. Because if you want his power, you must give up yours. If you want his strength, you must declare your weakness. Because his strength is made perfect in weakness. We must die to the illusion we can control life, including this one or the one you see in the mirror. We have to die to ego and our controlaholism so the Spirit can take us to a whole new level. It's the only way. All Christians have the Holy Spirit. But the question is, does the Holy Spirit have all of us? That means crucifixion. And I want to say something here because someone came to me after the first service and said, you know, what you're preaching is biblical and I can't disagree with it. But he said, I grew up in a tradition where I heard sermons just like that and it left me bloody and beaten. And I'll tell you why. 
The first thing is this. They were preaching law instead of grace. We do not surrender to God in order to get saved. We surrender to God because we are saved. Amen? And also that was strafe, they were strafe with perfectionism. You have to be filled with the Spirit so you can be perfect, so you can go to heaven. No, Jesus doesn't ever expect us to be perfect. He expects us to be different. There's a difference there. Don't you see it? And the other thing people were taught in some of this old stuff was that the way you surrender everything is you hate yourself. You're ashamed of yourself. I want to tell you something. God doesn't get glory because you hate your own guts. Jesus doesn't want you hating yourself. He just wants you realizing there is someone bigger than you and more powerful than you and better than you and smarter than you and your life is better off in his hands than in your hands. That's what he wants you to realize. When I talk about death to self, I'm not going, oh, yeah, I will try to annihilate my personality. And my No, God doesn't want to annihilate your personality. He wants to shine through your personality. Now, I'm glad I straightened that out. I wish I'd straightened it out in the first service. Thank you, Philip. <laughs> and why should we surrender? Why should we surrender? I'm going to give you two reasons. Because you will never be more free than when you're surrendered to Jesus. You like freedom? There was a Father Scanlon. He was a priest. And he was on his way from Chicago to Steubenville, Ohio, in a small cub airplane with a friend. And as they approached the airport, they, they going to land, they entered a dark cloud. They thought it was smoke from you know, somebody burning something. Boy, did they misjudge it. It was an extremely violent storm with huge hell balls flying in it. Father Scanlon knew that he was going to die that day and die in minutes. And he did what most of us would do. He turned to the Lord. Lord Jesus, he prayed, I've done many things I wish I hadn't done. And I haven't done many things I wished I had. And I'm sorry. And as the hail battered, the plane and the wind roared, and the plane spun down towards the ground, Father Scanlon added this second prayer. He said, Lord, it might be a little late, but I give it all to you. I give it all to you. And I trust in your merciful love, even right now. And at that instant, Father Scanlon experienced in that plane, on his way to his death, an extraordinary visitation of the Spirit. He says, I was enveloped in God's love. It filled every fiber of my being. Peace welled up within me. Scanlon said the mind can play tricks in desperate situations, but he said this was not a trick. The Lord God Almighty was there. There in that ridiculously small plane, which was about to crash in a field somewhere west of Steubenville, Ohio. And he said the most amazing thing of all happened. As he described it, he said, suddenly, as the Spirit filled that plane, he said, I became completely indifferent to death. I was not afraid. I'm going to meet him All in I a matter of seconds. He said, that was more real to me than the rattle of the hail or the scream of the engine as the plane fell. Can you be, imagine plunging to your death and you're not scared? 
and you're not afraid of anything, plunging to your death and you have this incredible sense of well-being, that is what it means to be totally surrendered to God. In that instant, when he surrendered everything, he became instantly aware of God's presence in that cockpit. That's the hallmark of spirit fullness. The knowledge that God Almighty is inside us and around us, that Jesus Christ is alive and risen from the dead and he's with us now. Spiritfulness is being enveloped in God's love. It's caring more about that love than life or death or jobs or possessions. It's being hopelessly in love with Jesus because when you are filled with the Spirit, you realize he is hopelessly in love with you. Did you know Jesus is hopelessly in love with you? If you really realized you would you handle snakes. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> You would turn somersaults. When the Spirit is in control, you are a slave to nothing. When the Spirit is in control, you no longer live life for yourself, but for Him and with Him. And there is nothing that puts you in bondage. You realize Jesus has my life in His hands. What can really hurt me? Not life or death, nor angels or demons. Nothing on this world, below this world, above this world. Nothing past, present, or future. Isn't that what Paul said in Romans 8? If Christ is for me, who can be against me? This is the freedom of surrender. Can you imagine anyone freer than Father Scanlon plunging to his death going, Praise Jesus. Everything's cool. Everything's cool. It reminds me of Pastor Sedder with her, I win on her neck, where she goes, whether I live from cancer or die from cancer, my life is in the hands of God. Praise God. That's freedom. That is freedom. Have you ever been that free? That is why you die to self. That is why you surrender, so you can know that kind of freedom. And the second reason we surrender we accept our crucifixion in Christ is because when we surrender the spirit can pour his supernatural life into us and a power into us that can do things beyond our mere abilities James Moore said that he had an interesting experience at a party he said it was a house full of people, there was a festive mood, much noise, a hubbub of conversation, and party sounds. People were standing in little clusters like they do at parties and talking. Others were playing games, uh, settlers and stuff. No, they, they weren't invented back then. Listening to, they were listening to records, not CDs, watching television, and preparing refreshments in the kitchen. Typical party. And in the midst of all this, James Moore said, I sat down at the piano, flexed my two index fingers, and began to play chopsticks for the crowd, which just happens to be my complete repertoire of piano selections. After a bit, a close friend walked over and tapped James on the shoulder and said with a grin, Jim, why don't you get up and let somebody play the piano who knows what she's doing? He said, I stood up, and he introduced a young woman who was visiting our city from another state. After excuse me, after some coaxing, she sat down and began to play. And he said when she began to play, she was magnificent. 
She became one with that musical instrument. Her hands moved gracefully and confidently up and down the keyboard as she played a Beethoven masterpiece. She was so good that everybody in the house literally dropped what they were doing. Conversations stopped. Table games were pushed aside. The television was turned off. You know God's moving or something's happening when the television's turned off. That was my wife. Thank you, honey, for that. <laughs> we'll talk later about your surrender to Jesus. People came out of the kitchen. And uh, everyone gathered to listen. And when she finished, there was a kind of reverent silence for a brief moment. And then spontaneous, thunderous applause as everybody in the house said, more, more. He said, out of that experience, I had several thoughts. Was that really the same piano I had been playing moments before? How can one instrument make two totally different sounds? And he said, it was clear that my feeble attempt was childish and amateurish and simplistic, while hers was studied and loving and masterful. He said, I had contented myself with using only two fingers and eight notes, whereas she used all her fingers and all the keyboard. The truth is, she said, I'd settled for a little musical knowledge while she had become a master musician. You can readily see the spiritual application of this. When it comes to spiritual realities, too many of us are satisfied with chopsticks. The Spirit wants to play Beethoven through us. We want to play with a handful of keys. The Spirit wants to use the entire keyboard. We want to show what we can do. The Spirit wants to show what the Master can do when He plays His song through us. We are dealing with a power we can't begin to comprehend. A power that has been sent to do nothing less than save the world. A presence sent to pour the very love of God into us and never leave us the same. A power and person who is meant to transform the very core of us. But i got to tell you something. He comes on his own terms, not ours. And his terms are total surrender. His terms are that you can't live the life I ask, so you, I must live it through you. For me to live is Christ. He wants all your life, not a small compartment of it. He wants all your life. Jesus will not be satisfied if you just have just enough religion to quiet your conscience or calm your fears, he wants all of you. Christ was crucified. He asks us to join him. So his life can be ours too. Jesus isn't after good people. He is after crucified, surrendered people, brothers and sisters. You know... I know this is, this is kind of uh, counter, counterintuitive to me because, you know, when you, when you think about a series, you want to kind of, you know, watch it crescendo up. But I realized today, you know, if you wanted to get your shout on, it was last week or half a dozen other times. But what I'm talking about doesn't require noise. It requires silence. It requires listening to the Spirit. 
It requires the deepest kind of commitment. You know, when you when you are when you're on the surgeon's table and he's doing surgery, you don't dance. You lay there and let him do his surgery. I'd like you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want us to take a few moments. I want us to take a few moments. And I want you to ask yourself this question when it comes to the Spirit of God and His fullness in your life. What am I afraid of? And what am I holding back? And what keeps me from throwing myself into the arms of love? What stops me from totally, totally giving Him everything? The Spirit's Speaking now in the silence. Listen as he speaks to your heart. Lord Jesus, I loved what that young poet said earlier in our service when she said, if you can think of nothing else to give, give up. Help us, Jesus, to give up. Help us, Lord, to give you all in the silence that is here now. Lord, we want to be free. And we want your life lived through us. And we want to see supernatural, supernatural things happen around us. Help us, Lord Jesus, to die so you can live. Because it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Amen. I'd like the ushers to, to get ready for the serving of communion. Today we're going to have communion in our seats. We ask that you hold the bread and hold the cup until, until all can participate together. We also want you to know that in some of the plates there's a little bag with gluten-free bread. If you, if you do not, if you're allergic to to gluten there's you can have that we do not ask that you be brethren in christ or member of the brethren in christ church but we really ask that you know jesus the one or the one that we've been talking about all morning we now invite you to come to this table not because you must but because you may come to testify not that you are perfect but that you sincerely love our lord jesus christ and desire to be his true disciple Come, not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in your frailty you stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. Anybody here who stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help? Now that the supper of the Lord is spread before you, 
Lift up your minds and hearts above all selfish fears and cares. Let this bread and this cup be to you the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave to his disciples. We follow his example. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Lord, in everything you ask of us, you went first. When you said, give me all of your life, you went first. When you said, surrender to the will of God, you went first. When you said you must die in order to live, you went first, Jesus. And so we remember at this time that you who call us to give everything gave everything first. Bless us as we remember this in Jesus' name. Amen. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
Let us do the response of reading together. Brothers and sisters, this bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? This bread which we break is the communion of the body of Christ. Take and eat this bread, remembering that he was born to be our Savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him in your heart and be thankful. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he also took the cup, blessed it, and gave it to his disciples. We do likewise. I'm going to ask Pastor Hank to pray over the cup. In like manner, Holy Spirit, we come before you, grateful for Jesus our Christ, the one who came, the one who died, the one who on Calvary's tree freely, lovingly, and willingly shed his blood for us. Lord, as we continue our worship, may we always remember the blood that cleanses us from all sins, the blood that allows new life of the Spirit, and the blood that redeems us now and always. We thank you for your love for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Joy of thy salvation and renew. 
Brothers and sisters, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? This cup of blessing which we bless is the communion of the blood of Christ. Take this cup, remembering that he said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together and be thankful. Thank you, Jesus. Are we not grateful? Mm. May go. This time I'd like you uh, to stand. I'd like the intercessors to come forward and we will pray for you. If you do not know what we've been talking about, there's a good way to find out. And that is to give your heart to the one we've been talking about. Also, Again, we will pray for anything, any need. And so if the intercessors will come during this last song, we, it will be a time of prayer as well as a time of celebration and song. About 200 years ago, Charles Wesley wrote a song when he found the Lord. We're going to sing that song today. Number 115, And Can It Be. 